Welcome to the debut of Richer PictureCast, a monthly podcast all about helping students and teachers reflect on their work and track their path to success. We'll highlight Richer Pictures products and services, an online system focused on digital portfolios, badges, data dashboards, and individual learning plans. But in the process, we'll delve into progressive curriculum, instruction, and assessment areas, and invite some guests with interesting teaching and learning stories. My name is Bill Carroza, your host for these chats, and on this first richer picture cast, it makes perfect sense to bring in my friend David Nigadula, the founder of Ideas Consulting and Richer Picture, and the author of the 2019 ASCD book, Demonstrating Student Mastery with Digital Badges and Portfolios. David, thanks for spending some time with us today. Always a pleasure to be with you, Bill. David, I go back a long ways. I've seen your career grow through the years, but I, I wish I knew you way back when, because you had a wonderful history um, of your uh, uh, groundbreaking work with digital portfolios, especially with the Annenberg Institute, Ted Sizer, we were just talking about before I hit record, and the the famous Coalition of Essential Schools. Um, Dave, give us a little history of of your time with Ted and and all your work with with the coalition. Sure, this can go back into what feels like ancient history now, but actually, way back as an undergraduate at Brown, I happened to take a course from a visiting professor who was coming to campus because he had just finished some research and was in the middle of writing a book. And that's how he felt he could gather some thoughts together. A fellow named Ted Sizer, who uh, had just finished this work for the NASSP um, called A Study of High Schools. At the time, I was actually a computer science major, but I ended up doing a double major in computer science and education. And as uh, Ted finished up this book, which eventually became Horace's Compromise, uh, was sort of a groundbreaking time in school reform. His book, a number of others at the time as well, uh, started to say, let's rethink about how high schools could be. So what happened is Ted took the work from there. The book had a good reception to say it mildly, mm. and founded this organization of said, let's get some schools together who would like to put some of these ideas in place, which became uh, the Coalition of Essential Schools. So this was founded, this is, you know, the mid-80s. Um, I graduated, um, spent some time at some other uh, universities, and ended up back at Brown in around 1990, where we started to think about how could technology be of use in this whole idea of school reform. So the notion of the coalition was, and the power of it was, it wasn't a prescription to say, here is what you should do in school, or it wasn't a specific curriculum. It was founded on a set of ideas, nine common principles about what school should be. The most important of which was that the purpose of school is for um, students to learn to use their minds well. The idea of um, that no two good schools are going to be alike and everybody's going to do things in their own way. Uh, one of the com- common principles is this idea that primary assessment should be based around the idea of the exhibition. That is not a whole reliance solely on standardized testing, but on kids actually demonstrating what they could do. 
And at the time, technology was really just starting to emerge in schools. So my research at that point was about how could technology be of some help um, as schools at the time were connecting to the internet and what could we do with it? So what happened is we got a generous research grant from the IBM Corporation to study how technology could be useful in this process. And through that initial work, um, school in your backyard, Thayer High School up in New Hampshire. Um, right. Dennis Lickey. Uh, yes, he was yeah. there at that point. Um, worked with them and um, a number of other schools, uh, Croton Harmon District in Westchester, New York, a school in um, outside of Louisville, Kentucky, a really interesting um, Socratic seminar school called Sullivan High School in, in um, inner city of Chicago. Um, there were a whole group of schools where we started to think through how this could um, play out. And that was the very first research project on this notion of digital portfolios, the idea of collecting student work. If we're going to not rely on standardized tests, what are the alternatives? And the alternative was to say, standardized testing are an external thing. Why not rely on what's actually going on in the classroom? And one of the key takeaways, I think, that we can, was a set of essential questions of what digital portfolios represented. The very first technical things, you know, we would laugh at it today. I mean, they were built in things, versions of, of um, Hyper Studio and, yeah. and uh, old thing called Toolbook and, you know, just sort of, these were pre-internet types of things. Um, getting a video in was, um, we did it at a school in the Bronx. You know, we did some really interesting video stuff called University Heights. It was a major effort to just even get these things connected. But what we did come away with were a set of essential questions that I think are relevant even to this day. What's the If you're going to collect student work, what's the purpose? Who's the audience? Um, how are we going to determine how, what is good enough? That is, how are we going to assess this work? What do, else do we have to do in the school? What else has to change in the culture? Those questions are really what's been guiding our work ever since. And, you know, I read Horace's Compromise way back when I followed, I, I really was an elementary guy, not a high school guy, but I followed um, the work of, of Ted um, through the years. I think senior projects to mm -hmm. this day, which are used in high schools across the world, I think the genesis of that probably came from Ted's work, don't you think? Oh, it's a major influence on it. I mean, you know, variations on this, of course, existed in, in some alternative schools and the like, but um, work, uh, you can see the coalition staff as they branched out in so many different ways. So one of the leading proponents of project-based learning, uh, PBO Works out in um, California, a number of coalition alumni um, are connected with them. But yes, the whole idea of, um, Ted would go back to saying, you know, as a historian, he'd say back on the prairie when schools would, you know, have their end of year celebration, they would have an exhibition. The kids would show off their spelling and their reading. And this was, and then everybody would have a wonderful, you know, summer lunch. You know, this was the notion of it. Today's senior project is, is very much an offshoot off of that. It's saying to 
the student, to the teacher, and to the community, this is what I can do. This is what I have learned in my years together. And that's what it's really about. The technology, now we can do it as podcasts or as uh, video clips or, or have a, um, variations of TED Talks. But that notion of it, that here is what I'm capable of, here's what my interests are, um, here's what my education has meant, is really at the heart of it. Um, and we try to do a little piece of it when when we have kids put these together in, in their portfolios. So we know that finding ways to exhibit work, you know, aside from standardized test scores is important. We know that reflecting on kids' work is important. How does your product, how do digital portfolios in general, how do they make that process either more efficient or better or more accessible? The key thing is that we're talking about the work of the school that exists. We're not talking about, as I was saying, the external types of things. So we're talking about what are the students and the teachers doing on a daily basis? So the process um, of portfolio development has been called collect, select, reflect, and present. And in each stage of that, we can be talking about the importance of how uh, student voice, how important student voices in each of these areas. So when we're collecting the work, what is the best work I've done? Increasingly, one, one interesting avenue is uh, collecting work doesn't have to be just from inside the school. Maybe my, and uh, we've seen a lot of that during the pandemic. Some of my work may have been things that I did at home or through some outside organization. But the point of it is, here's the stuff I'm proud of. Here's the stuff that I'm good at. But it also helps when the school gives some guidelines. Here are the standards that we expect you to meet. Here are the various types of things. Here in Rhode Island, there's a graduation requirement. If you need your portfolio has to include things from English, math, science, social studies, the arts and technology. That's still very broad, but it ensures that a student's portfolio can't all just come from one area. You have to show some breadth. So as you're collecting, as the students are selecting their work, as they're deciding, you know, which I've got all of these pieces, you know, which are the three or four that I want to emphasize? As I reflect on it and think about what's, um, I, I'm starting to identify what's important to me because ultimately when I present out through some formal thing or through informal selections that I want to say, here are the pieces I want to share with, my family, my colleagues, my my graduation committee, college admissions, employers, whoever, I need to be thinking about what is it that represents what they're looking for, but also represents me. So that's um, this constant thinking about what this work is elevates it. it. It takes the idea of just, I'm handing into the teacher this assignment and I'll never think about it again, to something that's that can potentially be meaningful. One of the trends that is really barnstorming the country, especially high schools, but very often even K to twelve districts, is the concept of a of the portrait of a graduate. Mm. How does your work and ILPs, individual learning plans, how does that really help? And, and just as a corollary, I, I mentioned I, I watched a presentation you made to a middle school in Rhode Island, and that's one of the states, as you mentioned, that. Uh, requires that. Um, has it been helpful, the fact that some state departments of ed are actually requiring that? And and how, again, does your product 
you know, help bring that all together. Yeah, no, the work on the portrait or sometimes called the vision of a graduate is, is fascinating. School communities are getting together and really trying to define what that means. And it's it's very interesting that you go to any school anywhere in, in the country or in the world, for that matter, that's, that's thought about this. Academics is a key part, but not by no means the only part. Folks will talk always about things like being a good citizen or a communicator or a problem solver. You know, I want people to be lifelong learners. Demonstrating, you know, and, and you know, school communities have constantly acknowledged this is important, but it's not very easily measurable. You can't look at a student's GPA and say, oh, well, here is somebody who, who knows has persistence or is the has the ability to uh, really dig deep into problems or is this kind of team player. The ability to show both is critical. So one way that we've tackled this recently is through the use of digital badges. And imagine, if you will, um, an opening screen. Students often will set up with when uh, schools with two sets of badges. One being those required things. What is it that we expect of our our vision of a graduate? Every student should be able to demonstrate skills in uh, reading and writing and listening and speaking and social studies or, or, you know, CTE areas, you know, whatever your academic things. But also these other critical things about being able to demonstrate problem-solving skills, being able to demonstrate um, long-term thinking, being, you know, Knowing who I am, uh, we work with a, a fascinating school, the Rhode Island School for the Deaf. One of their required badges is about deaf identity. You know, so where am I in this culture? So that's the required set. This is what every student does. We also have a second set of badges that represent my interests. If any of you have done scouting, you might remember having those set of required and optional badges as well. Those Badges can represent the student's particular interest. Things like CTE pathways. So this student, they're going to do all the required ones, but then they're also going to do things around culinary, or they want to do things around um, space exploration, or you know, these are students who know they want to do environmental things. You know, those kinds of areas. Maybe it's you know they don't know exactly what career they want, but they're very interested in sports or video games or whatever else, those are all learning experiences and being able to capture all that. That's what we try to do. And that's why we call it the richer picture, because we're trying to get a much better view of a student than the traditional transcript and other types of uh, elements have provided in the past. I just did some writing about, as a former principal, how important it is for school leaders to get to know their kids. It's not always easy because you might have three, 500, 700 kids Obviously, to me anyway, digital badges, portfolios are great at helping a student understand themselves as a learner. I mean, to me, that might be the most important role. But how do those sort of digital tools help the educational community, staff, parents, community members get to know their students better as well? Digital badges are an intriguing way of providing a visual to the portfolio and one interesting that's the come thing that just comes up with the metaphor is the process of when you think of the word badges, the verb that's most commonly associated with them is earning. 
I'm going to earn a batch. And defining what that means is very different. Just students and teachers seem to approach it in a different way than the idea of, of the final grades I'm going to have on a transcript. So that's an average, or we talk about GPAs, you know, or so on. Um, extra credits and those kinds of things. When I earn a badge, there's a, when we define a badge, there's a set of requirements for what the student's going to have to be able to do. And that's what I need to be able to earn those things. And by thinking of it in that way, what does it mean to earn a badge in math? It's not just, you know, I've gotten so many percentage on, on such and such tests. It's the fact of there's a certain set of skills, a certain set of knowledge, a certain set of habits that we need want students to be able to demonstrate. I want you to be able to estimate. I will need you to really understand word problems. You know, there are very specific skills that are involved, uh, but the specific application is where the students can show. So when we're looking at a student, students in a class, everybody might have a slightly different variation of it. I'll give you one interesting example from an elementary school we did. Um, they wanted to record the kids' skills in problem solving. So what the teacher did um, was to collect um, weekly problems. They, they would have a word problem of the week. And the teachers um, had these essentially in a folder and at some point, you know, before the parent-teacher conference, they'd go to the manila folder and say, let's get on video and I'd like you to walk me through how you solve this particular problem. And kids would pick different ones. Sometimes it was the one that they found really hard and they were really satisfied that they, they had figured out. Others said, you know, oh yeah, no, I like geometry. And so let me tell you the ones about where I had to figure out how much room, some, you know, how much space was required to build a room or, or various measurements like that. Um, that got at the math content in a much deeper way. And when you look back at the videos of the kids doing this, you can see that they approached, the teacher would ask the same questions. You know, tell me about the problem. What were the strategy you used? He, um, how, what is, what's the specific math that, that was involved? But when you look at the videos one after another, it's fascinating how the students took the same problem and had their own spin on it. You know, some would make analogies to other things in their life. Oh, yeah, I don't remember. That's like what we do with the cars or that's what we do when I make dinner. or That's when, you know, like such and such game. That's when we get to know the kids. So, it, it, again, the richer picture comes out when we're able to look at the evidence of what the students have done towards earning the badge. So this is out of left field a little bit, but it's a podcast, so we can do that, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I like to make comparisons, and it's, it's done often between the, the medical profession and the teaching profession. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously very different, but doctors have specialized more and more as time goes on because there's more research. We do a better job of healing people and so on. I feel the same way about teaching a lot of times where we know much more about teaching than we did like when I started in the, in the eighties, but what that has meant, we've increased staff a little bit. We have reading specialists, math specialists, but there's a lot of things now that we need our teachers to be 
good at, to know a lot about. Mm. And as someone who was a principal for a long time, I would tap certain staff members at an interest, for instance, in in trauma-based mm. uh, instruction. And not everybody can be an expert in everything. How can your product help teachers both recognize be motivated maybe to go down a, a certain road, you know, that may be almost extracurricular to what they they normally teach uh, and define passions that are even beyond what they were certified in when they went to college. So for teachers, I, I, there's two two things that come jump to mind in thinking about that question. One is when we're talking about collecting the student work, there have been some really interesting side effects for teachers. So one is just a greater attention to the kinds of projects that they're asking students to do. What is it that they're going to engage? Um, part of it is just fascinating at the beginning. When schools start to, to work with digital portfolios, it's just the fact that other teachers are going to see their work. You know, um, if, if you know, you're a middle school, high school teacher, you may never see what actually goes on in the other classrooms that are there. Here, sort of like, oh, I've heard you talk about this social studies magazine that's been happening in that class. Now I'm actually seeing it for, for really the first time. That idea of an audience, even in a, in a very limited way, uh, help teachers to sort of, you know, spiff things up a little bit and to think about more carefully. But it's also a celebration of their work, too. They're really, it's, it's a showcase of, of the really interesting things that, that teachers come up with. There are fascinating variations. You know this. I mean, you've seen this in your schools. You know, this teacher really has this interesting approach to, to um, you know, this particular subject or this particular unit. So there's always some interesting things that, that, that what teachers bring to it. Um, the other part that came to mind is when teachers are thinking about their own personal growth. There are certainly a number of folks who have been approaching the idea of digital badges for the professional community. And we've done some of that too. Uh, so the idea of, I would like to, like you said, there's many, many new ways. So I would like to know better about dealing with trauma or becoming project-based learning or learning more about technology. Um, there's many skills, knowledge, habits that, that teachers can be growing in. So this notion of uh, building badges for themselves and, and providing exhibitions is one that I think has, has, has started to take off as well. So there's some really interesting uh, variations on it. I, I think the last piece I want to mention on this is that one thing we've learned early on is that too many technology tools are meant to be cookie cutter approaches. Sort of, you know, some master set of programmers are out there developing the design and everybody sort of has to follow with it. We learned early on that two schools are not going to approach things in the same way. And even schools within the same district or in the same, serving the same community may have their own approaches. So we work with dual language schools where everything, you know, appears in, in both English and Spanish, you know, and every um, set of work is collected accordingly. We have schools that say, you know, we really need to put a greater emphasis on our community building and, and we'll want to make sure that that's a through line of, of what we see in their work. So 
the idea of not only should students be able to build a portfolio that makes it feel like their own, schools, teachers, principals should be able to look at this and say, yeah, I'm represented in this as well. Our community is something that when we build these things, reflects us as well. David, you have such a strong background in technology, in computers. You know, we know that. <laughs> and that, you know, in many ways is what people think of when they think of David Nigadula. But I know you also as a as a passionate a promoter of, of good educational practices. I mean, you talked earlier at the beginning of the podcast about how you decided to have a dual major and you threw education in there. Well, you weren't just going to be you know, writing code for some program you you wanted to implement it in schools. In the area of classroom assessment, in, in the area of teaching in general, traditional practices still reign supreme. They they do. We know that about American schools and, and schools in different areas across the world. But you still seem to have have great hope. So talk about your continued hope for schools in these areas. One of the great benefits was being having the opportunity to um, work with and and get to know and and become colleagues with a number of really fascinating folks. So the what I know about assessment beyond Ted and the folks of the coalition were people like Jay McTie and Linda Darlingham and and um, Heidi Hayes Jacobs and, and the work on curriculum mapping, which overlaps assessment very heavily. And our continued conversations, um, you know, folks like like um, Tom Gusky also down in, uh, who's really been rethinking grades and, and a lot of folks connected with ASCD. There's sort of a common theme that's emerged out of all of it, which is that when we think about what an assessment is actually supposed to represent, we have to get away from it being this gatekeeper only. It needs to be a learning experience. Um, folks like Grant Wiggins and, and Jay, when they talked about you know the um, understanding understanding by design work, it, it was all about we really want to measure does a student understand something, and the snapshot standardized test doesn't do that. It has its own purpose. I mean, there is you know this is not to say that there is no role for a standardized test, but the idea that a student's graduation needs to depend on it, or that the idea that this is the one piece of data that will determine whether you are get promoted to the next grade or not, is incredibly limiting. What we need to understand, um, you know, my you know, one mentor at the coalition, a fellow named Joe McDonald, talked about the idea of warm and cool assessment. You know, the idea of war, cool assessment being, you know, something that you're taking at a distance, warm being something that, that you know something about the student. So when we do something in the classroom and look at um, a student piece of writing, say, you might look at this and say, you know, among the peers of the student at, you know, for this student's ninth grade work, you know, it's, it may not be that great. That's the cool assessment. But the warm assessment is, but if we compare this to where the student was at the beginning of the year, this is a huge growth. There is sophistication and levels of understanding and depth in this writing that wasn't there before. You need both. 
you know, it's perfectly fair to say this student isn't at the standard of where we would expect to be, and they're going to have to do a lot more work if they're going to be able to graduate. Perfectly fair. But it's also fair to say you've made great strides. As teachers, we know, teachers I talk with know this inherently, you know, give them a month with their kids and they can say, I, I've already seen the growth here. I know where this kid is heading. If I can move them a little bit in this direction, I, I, this is where we can work together on, on the student's learning journey. That's instinct of, of anybody who's actually done teaching is at the heart of, I think, where this kind of thing happens. Policy is its own kind of thing, but when you're in the classroom and you're working with kids, you know this to be true about assessment. You know if, if you can um, give an evaluation, give a feedback that says, this is what's going to help the student get to the next level. I can see where this kid's going. I can know where, I, I can think of some of the steps to help them get there. That attitude, that approach, you know, it's what I believe teachers love to do. It's the idea of being able to say, I know how to get the student to the next point. And that's what I think, you know, we try to build the tools to help with that. So, David, how can people find out more about Richard Picture? Well, our website is easy. It's richerpicture.com. It is R-I-C-H-E-R-P-I-C-T-U-R-E.com. And some of you may say, why is he spelling it? Well, I've had a lot of folks think it was Richard's, like some like someone's name. So, no. no. Um, uh, Richerpicture.com. Uh, there are lots of resources on there. There uh, and Bill, you and I, you know, we, we've started this. We're going to be having more and more things on our blog uh, that, that you'll be able to see some stuff there. But you can learn about our products. You can learn about upcoming events where you can see us in person. Uh, some specific things that we'll be talking about over the course of this year in, in this podcast. So specific applications in areas ranging from CTE to elementary parent-teacher conferences, all sorts of fascinating stuff. Yeah. So that's where you can find out more. And the website got a refresh recently. Yes, yes. So our team has done a great job in, in making it look nicer, and, and uh, we'll be adding some uh, ongoing resources, uh, some new clips to learn more about what we do, and um, have more stories and uh, welcome the conversation. So that's the best place to find us. All right. Well, David, thank you for your your time today. And uh, listeners, if you have any comments on the show or ideas for future podcasts, feel free to email us at info at richerpicture.com. I'm Bill Carosa, and I'll see you next time for the Richer Picture Cast. Take care, everybody. Mm-hmm.